This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor William Kavasic about competition institutions in a digital age. A political science friend of mine once said that the position you want to occupy in the solar system of regulation is uh, very much like the Earth's. You want to be far enough away from the sun that you're not burned to a crisp, but close enough that you're not frozen out either. So you don't want to be Mercury and you don't want to be uh, Saturn or Pluto. And that's a difficult policy domain and space to define and to occupy. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Happy New Year to you all. I hope you're feeling charged up for the year ahead and welcome back to Competition Law. If you're listening for the first time, welcome to you. I'm delighted you've joined us. Much of the debate in connection with competition in a digital age is about the substance of rules and regulations. But what about the institutions tasked with developing and enforcing them? Well, I'm thrilled that in our first episode of 2019, we have with us Professor William Kavasic. Bill has a near monopoly on the topic of competition agencies and related institutions. What drives them? What challenges them? And how should we evaluate them? He's been the chairman of one of the foremost competition authorities in the world, the US Federal Trade Commission. He's now a non-executive director of the UK Competition and Markets Authority, and in his academic capacity, he's extensively published and routinely sought out for speaking engagements around the world. Now, Bill is wont to remind us that, and I quote, elegant physics without excellent engineering is a formula for policy failure. A reminder that may reflect some paternal influence, his father having been a chemical engineer. So, naturally, I started by asking Bill to explain what engineering has to do with competition. As you mentioned, there's an extraordinary tendency to focus on the big ideas of substance and to try to answer the question, what should we do? That tends to obscure the question of how we should do it and to underestimate the importance of the implementing institutions that deliver policy. It accounts, I think, in so many ways for why the broad aspirations contained in legislation or in other forms of policymaking fall short in implementation. There's a healthy recognition, I think, over the last 20 years that the framework for actual implementation, the engineering details of how you do it, how you take a specific initiative or an idea and you ground it in actual practice is an enormously important ingredient of policymaking. So the positive news is that we're thinking more about the engineering. But if you have great physics and bad engineering, you have an institution or framework that's destined to fail, or at least to disappoint the citizens that paid the money and provided the support to create the regulatory framework. And what are the institutions we should be thinking about in this regard, aside from competition authorities, of course? In the 
technologically dynamic areas that receive a great deal of attention, properly receive attention today. We can start in many ways with the competition agency itself, but related disciplines involving consumer protection, data protection and privacy, intellectual property, all of the public policymaking bodies that have a hand in setting those policies ought to be involved in the solution of the problem. Now, some of our competition authorities are not simply competition agencies. The ACCC in Australia being a striking example, the CMA, Competition and Markets Authority, in the United Kingdom being another, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission being a third, are multifunction institutions that bring the consumer and the competition mandate under the same roof. So there's a degree of physical policymaking integration that joins up these different areas. Beyond these substantive policymakers, we have to think about the role of the courts as decision makers. We have to think about the role of universities as academic hubs that in so many instances provide the ideas, analytical insights, empirical work that can provide a extremely valuable foundation for making good policy. So, a sensible approach to policymaking here is to step back for a second and ask which government bodies and non-government bodies are going to be crucial to the formulation of good policy. Who are they and how well connected are they in trying to solve observed problems? So uh, a focus that thinks only about competition law, antitrust enforcement is going to fall well short of providing a good solution. Do you see a case for closer coordination between competition and consumer protection agencies, either as standalone or as amalgamated, and their privacy counterparts? Unmistakably, where the privacy portfolio is in the hand of a standalone data protection body, often an independent commission, a competition agency that wants to do good work in issues involving Information services, the sharing, collection, use of data about consumers and others has to have a close working relationship with the data protection authorities, both to develop a common understanding of the observed problems, to understand the respective programs that both institutions are seeking to carry out, but also to recognize that in a number of instances, they very well might want to pursue common strategies, either developing studies or developing enforcement programs, rulemaking that addresses specific phenomena. So, Indeed, you've called for a collective networked effort of governance across regulatory bodies that have portfolios that touch on this area. Can you give us an example of a jurisdiction where you've seen that done particularly well? It's an important question because the theory of cooperation, network governance is one thing. It's realization and practice is another. For a variety of reasons, public institutions that have related or shared responsibilities do not immediately and automatically see the need or value in cooperation. Indeed, they're just as likely to engage in turf protection, the pursuit of parochial institutional interests rather than forging the alliances that are essential to do good policy work here. The experiences I've seen that are the most promising are in the United Kingdom today, where 
the Competition and Markets Authority has formulated a program called the United Kingdom Competition Network, which allies the CMA with a variety of other sectoral regulators in telecommunications and energy, for example. It's formulated good relationships with financial services regulators. I believe that work with the data protection authorities is increasingly part of the agenda. Do you perceive potential tensions in either amalgamating those functions in the one body or in having close coordination between standalone bodies, given that really the realm of privacy regulation is very different in tenor and thrust to the realm of competition regulation? A competition agency that has experience doing consumer protection work already has a major advantage in understanding the culture and objectives of its data protection counterparts. It understands that there are objectives uh, related to individual dignity, individual autonomy that go beyond uh, some of the concerns that arise in a traditional competition law setting. The competition agency is also in a position as part of its longstanding advocacy work to suggest to the data protection regulator how the data protection regime can make choices that accomplish important data protection goals, but infringe or impede less dramatically the accomplishment of important competition law goals. A valuable message for the competition regulator to set forward is that competition can be one of the most powerful forms of consumer protection or data protection. Competition might stimulate greater efforts on the part of firms to provide better data protection. And I think in some areas, we see companies around the world differentiating themselves on the basis of making claims to their users, their consumers, that we take data protection more seriously than our counterparts. We protect that data more effectively. That's a nascent form of competition we see today, but it's one respect in which uh, competition can be a real ally of data protection goals and not just an obstacle to accomplishing them. So there's in fact a synergy there. We've talked mostly about public institutions, but there is relatively little talk so far about the role for private litigation to share responsibility in the Herculean enforcement task that potentially faces competition agencies in this area. Do you observe from your experience in the US, which is perhaps the prime example of a flourishing private litigation system, do you observe there to be potential for sharing of the enforcement burden or do you have concerns about getting the balance right between private and public enforcement? I think the public enforcement regime is going to be the central foundation for good policymaking. The public institution is ordinarily going to be best situated, I think, to devise the broad policy framework that establishes good standards and implements them. At the same time, private enforcement can be a very valuable supplement to that. If you imagine the public institutions setting out broad standards, setting out the larger framework of policy commands, private actors can play an extremely 
valuable role in implementing that framework and seeing that those policy commands are actually fulfilled. The enforcement function is still largely dedicated to the public authority. It doesn't have to be that way. And getting the dosage right is important. If you think the U.S. has swallowed the whole bottle of aspirin, it's uh, still possible to have a good private rights of action system if you start with two tablets. But isn't part of the issue that, particularly in a judicial model, the public institution is only able to secure outcomes through bringing cases. I heard you observe in the hearings held by the Federal Trade Commission in the last months of 2018 that perhaps there is another way, and you pointed to the UK's markets regime, another avenue by which the public institution can structure and shape markets without always having to rely on enforcement action. I think you point to uh, an area of policymaking where there is a healthy recognition that the portfolio of policy tools ought to be diverse and ought to be front and center part of the consideration of any agency's uh, program, that you can shape policy in a very constructive way by doing a good study. You can draw a great deal of attention by doing that. The exceptional amount of attention, for example, in Australia that was generated by the ACCC's digital market study, that's being read all over the world. Maybe it leads to a case someday, but it's certainly shaping the policy debate in an important way. The UK regime that you referred to has a, a feature shared by few jurisdictions, Mexico is one of them, that allows the agency to do a study and impose remedies as a result of that study, but to impose remedies that aren't necessarily tethered to existing conceptions of competition law, to go more broadly, a more flexible tool to do that. This is a key institutional feature. It focuses the spotlight on how important the process is by which an agency sets its priorities, chooses projects to carry those out and to implement those projects. Those processes should take place with a clear recognition of the broader array of policy tools that are available. And at the very front end of the process, focusing attention on what do we want to do about it? What do we think the problem might be? What do we think the solution is? The focus on the solution is the equivalent of a commercial airliner identifying the destination before it takes off. If you're at an airport, you know, be at Kingsford and Sydney or, or at Melbourne, Tullamarine, and you you got on the plane and the pilot said, we're just flying today. We don't have a destination in mind, but we're flying. Uh, we're going to go east. Maybe we land in Brisbane. Maybe it's Sydney. Maybe it's Cairns, but we're just flying. I think you'd get off the plane unless you just wanted to be in a plane for a while. The focus on solutions is a necessary discipline that has to be introduced early. And the solutions can be multifaceted and they go well beyond simply the prosecution of cases. Well, so that's an interesting distinction between, on the one hand, planning strategic process to come up with solutions to what's happening in markets versus a process that focuses on individual cases responding to individual breaches. And that takes me usefully, I think, to the European Union, where, of course, there's been enormous focus on the cases brought by the Commission against Google. Many have pointed to what they regard as a transatlantic divide between the US and the European Union in the enforcement approach to big tech. 
I'd welcome your thoughts on that generally and in particular if you regard there as being such a divide how much would you put it down to institutional differences? The divide is unmistakable. The divide is most evident in matters involving Google. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission earlier in this decade undertook a much heralded investigation of Google involving a number of claims of improper exclusion that have been featured in the European Union's inquiries. The FTC announced with a great deal of attention, we're opening an investigation. It brought in very famous, prominent talent from academia and the private bar to help guide the case and then to litigate it. And then after a couple of years of study, the FTC closed the file and said, never mind, and really walked away with nothing. Google provided a letter that said, we'll be good, but an unenforceable commitment, not a binding order. And this was after you had left the commission. Is that right, Bill? Yes. The file had been opened. I was still at the FTC, but I left in 2011 and the matter came to an end in 2012, 2013 after I left. But I saw the buildup. I saw the run-up to the case. And the unmistakable impression that most observers had was that the FTC has made this a signature case. It's going to do something. And it ends with a press conference in which the commission says, never mind. And it raised the question of why, why that could have happened. And really three explanations. One is that the FTC decided that it could not win a case given the existing state of doctrine, which is very pro-defendant when it comes to dominant firms. A second is that it just lacked courage that in terms we might use in sport, it had the shot to make and it just choked and walked away from it. The third is uh, that it was a political fix, that Google succeeded in manipulating levers that it had at its disposal in the White House and the Congress to back the FTC away from it. My own view is that it's the first explanation. The commission dearly wanted to bring a case, decided it could not prevail in the case, and stood down. And by contrast, we've, of course, seen the European Commission going full speed ahead in a careful way, but with visibly dramatic results and startlingly different from those achieved in the U.S. And I think a crucial reason for that is that for the last 40 years, our Supreme Court in abusive dominance cases, all of them private trouble damage cases, has concluded that it must increase the demands imposed on plaintiffs to bring and succeed in exclusion cases. This has made the target for abusive dominance smaller and smaller. And those same standards now encumber the federal agencies. Uh, that is, the federal agencies, when they go to court, when they think about a case, are going to have to satisfy the same standards that were established to filter out what the Supreme Court thought would be improvident private cases. So the perceived overreaching that the Supreme Court sees in the private right of action has come around to encumber the government. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the court's perception of that overreaching is correct, that its theory of overdeterrence is correct. I am asserting with some confidence that the court believes it. And that has fed back in a very limiting way to what the federal agencies uh, have done. So 
the goals of the EU and U.S. system are different in some ways. The statutory command is different. But the thing I would point to most directly is that if this concern about private rights were not so acute, U.S. abuse of dominance law would more closely resemble European law, and we would see more cases, and we might very well have seen a Google case. Which, of course, takes us back to where we were before and the strictures or constraints on a public agency acting in a judicial system as compared to the administrative model in the European Union and many other parts of the world. So what does the FTC and or the DOJ do in this area where, as you say, abuse of dominance is a shadow of its former self as a result of court rulings over many years? precedent can always be overturned. Is it, in fact, a lack of courage or does there need to be legislative change or where do you see the answer? I think this goes back to a a more mundane process and institutional issue. If you take the existing doctrinal constraints as, as significant, and one should, and you thought that they were unduly limiting, you would think there would be a careful, thoughtful effort to ask, how do we expand that focus? How do we move that fence that surrounds us outward? That ought to be a combined effort of the Department of Justice and the FTC, which share the competition portfolio, to sit down together and say, what should our program be going ahead? What kinds of cases or other policy initiatives do we want to pursue to change perceptions about what doctrine should be? or to change it directly, and let's start bringing those cases. Now, this would be, again, a longer-term investment, but I don't see that happening in the United States today. That's not happened. There's no shared vision of what the program ought to be, and that's a necessary starting point. That is, again, from an institutional perspective, what you would expect to be the foundation of building a response to the limitations that have been established over the last 40 years. But the U.S. agencies, I think, do not clearly perceive themselves to be stuck in a rut that's been created by this jurisprudence. They're aware, I think, that in some ways the rest of the world is sailing past them, that the European Union is setting the global standards now, And if the U.S. wants to have a voice, an effective voice, in all of those discussions, privacy, consumer protection, competition law, it has to formulate a program for re-engaging. And that's not happening now. The agencies individually do some things. The FTC is running a set of hearings now to look at the future of U.S. competition law, to look at issues that arise in digital markets, information services dynamic technological settings and thinking about what policy should be with respect to mergers, dominant firm behavior. They're taking a look at these. And maybe that will be the inspiration to do this kind of strategic, forward-looking thinking, at least inside the FTC, and one might hope with the Department of Justice. It could do that. One hopes that it might. But I think there should be a growing awareness on the part of the U.S. agencies that they're missing a great game. Bill, I want to talk to you a bit about some of the features of institutional design that 
might affect the way in which an agency responds in this space. And we have mentioned already the scope of its mandate or its portfolio. But what about its formal and potentially also informal status? And I'm thinking about its relationship to government. Because in this area, of course, we're dealing with very large and powerful companies that some argue are threatening the competitive process. How much does the agency's relationship to government matter in terms of its effectiveness in dealing with those sorts of challenges? It's a very important consideration. And the question that's posed for every agency on earth is, what is the appropriate relationship of the competition institution of the political process? There's an awareness that the agency has to be able to take important decisions involving technical difficult issues without a public official pointing a gun at its head and saying, bring this case, don't bring that case, resolve this case on terms that favor my friends and punish my opponents. If that's the impulse for policymaking, you have a system that's illegitimate, unpredictable, and destructive, potentially. You need the autonomy to take those decisions to do things in a sense that hurt firms without having that type of guidance and direction from the government about what to do. Achieving that independence does not mean that you are completely divorced from government. You can't be. You need the government to give you resources. You need them sometimes to augment your powers. You need them to listen to you when you offer policy advice. And if you attempt to isolate yourself from them, You've denied yourself the opportunity to participate in discussions and decision-making that proved to be very valuable and significant. A political science friend of mine once said that the position you want to occupy in the solar system of regulation is uh, very much like the Earth's. You want to be far enough away from the sun that you're not burned to a crisp, but close enough that you're not frozen out either. So you don't want to be Mercury and you don't want to be uh, Saturn or Pluto. And that's a difficult policy domain and space to define and to occupy. But I think, again, as part of this strategic planning process, this effort to identify what programs should look like and how to carry them out, agencies increasingly are thinking, What is the political context in which we're taking decisions? It has to be aware that there are political consequences of the decision it takes. That awareness is not a formula for timidity, but it is a bit of a caution for the agency in that it has to ask, how many politically charged fights do we want to engage in at one time? How many battles at one time with whom? And if we're going to do things that will arouse the wrath and the opposition of significant commercial interests, how do we develop coalitions that will protect us as we do that? And part of the protection, I guess, for a competition agency in a politically charged process would be through its degree of public support, its reputational capital, the extent to which it has credibility in the eyes of the public. I want to ask you in that context about the leadership of an agency, Bill, Of course, there are various models for this around the world, and you've had experience with a number of them. But are there particular models that you regard as having benefits over others in a period where an agency is facing new and novel issues and challenges? 
I think we've learned a great deal in the last 15 or so years about the choice of leadership for an agency. At one time in my career, I was a competition law absolutist. I thought that if you had not had significant experience in the field of competition law, you had no business being the head of an agency. I've changed my mind about that. I think deep expertise in competition law is nice to have. It's not essential. And I've come to appreciate the importance of other disciplines in guiding the judgment of competition agencies. I think in some ways you can't do the job well if you're not in part a political scientist. You have to have broad awareness of this political environment in which you're operating. You have to understand the other public institutions, especially elected officials, what they demand, how they demand it. You have to have a touch and a feel for that environment. You know, if it were a sport like global football, you have to be a midfielder who has eyes in the back of her head, can see 360 degrees around the compass. And, and that broad vision involves a deep understanding of the economy, a deep understanding of the political process, a facility for public engagement in public appearances, speeches, presentations, not just a willingness to do it, but almost a relish in doing it. Can I interrupt you there? Are you essentially describing the current head of the European Commission, Margaret Vestager? You can make an argument that without giving them all grades, certainly the current commissioner has been very effective. She's been willing to bring a first-rate circle of people around her. She works hard. She's learned a lot. And she has an extraordinary intuition that's the product of having been the head of a major ministry in her home country, having been an astute student of the economy in her own country and in the European Union. And she knows a little bit about politics. There are those in the U.S. commentariat who charge her with taking on big U.S tech companies as a result of her own personal political aspirations. Do you put any store in that bill or do you think that's just bad cheese? I think anybody who gets those jobs has a little bit of ambition driving them along. Uh, nobody ascends to that level of responsibility without having uh, a fairly positive self-image. The people who get those jobs tend not to shy away from attention either. So are they somewhat interested in reputation, stature? Do they have some attraction to the acclaim that comes from doing big, visible things? I would say that describes just about everyone who's had a job like that. But is that the impulse that's guiding the program? I don't think so. I think it's much more grounded in uh, her perception of what good substantive policy is. Indeed, you can argue if she was without ambition, without drive, stamina, and had none of those features at all, I don't think you could do the job. I don't think mm. anyone could. I think that's right. Let's talk a bit about the tools in the toolkit. You've mentioned these already. And thinking about the European Union, the focus is on the big bazooka, the big case which, as you know, Tim Wu is calling for the, the U.S. authorities to take more of, the huge knee-wobbling fines. Is that where the focus should be in this era of big tech, on the big cases? Or should we be thinking also more about soft power tools? First and foremost, on good solutions. Mm. And we're making a big mistake if we equate big fines by themselves with solving the problem. 
I'll start with a, a very short testimonial to the importance of the capacity to impose financial penalties, sanctions. You have to do some of it. Otherwise, you're not seen as a credible force. But should we be beguiled by the size of the fines themselves? Should we fall backwards and say that's the mark of great policymaking success? No. The question we should ask persistently is, what is being done to change behavior, structure, in a way that produces better economic performance? And we get into a lot of trouble if uh, fines are the proxy for whether or not we're solving problems. So what agencies should do, again, as part of this process of planning programs and formulating a strategy is to ask, what's the solution? What solution are we seeking? What do we see to be the problem and how are we going to solve that problem? And the answer is really going to be saying we bury them with a staggering financial penalty and we've done our job. The attitude has to be a problem-solving attitude. The necessary starting point of any initiative is what do we see to be the competitive problem? What do we see to be the economic problem that implicates other policy domains? And if we're right about the problem, how are we going to fix it? And rarely do I think the answer is going to be bury them with a, a massive financial penalty. Aren't there challenges in these very fast-moving digital markets with taking a problem-solving orientation of the kind you advocate, given that things are moving so fast, some would say, well, the horse has already bolted. We've got these gargantuan-sized companies. They need to be broken up and simply dealt with in the way we can do best, and, and that's with structural remedies and big fines. And then there are others who say, well, you know, things are moving so fast. There'll be another Google. There'll be a different Facebook in five to ten years. We need to stand back and be cautionary in our intervention. This has always been one of the biggest problems for a competition authority is what do you do when the industry that you're looking at changes every couple of weeks? Mm. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that you look at that phenomenon and say, stand down. It does say that you have to think about your litigation process, the other policy tools, and say, how do we intervene in a way to make our efforts more timely, more effective than they would be otherwise. There's one view of the world, by the way, that says that just having the patrolman out there arresting a few people and running them through the criminal process by itself has value, that even if it operates slowly, that others who would think about violating the law say, well, the cops are there. They're arresting people. I don't want to be arrested, even if I'm later freed. I'm not going to break the law. One thing that you do to intervene faster is you invest a lot more effort up front in understanding the industry. It means you're going to do more market studies. It means you're going to hire more technologists. You're going to build greater capacity inside of your agency to study what's going on, to understand it, and to intervene faster rather than slower. That's one way you can do it. But that's a big investment in getting smarter about how the industry operates. And again, it's probably going to reduce your case count. It means you won't be out there as often with cases. You'll be bringing a smaller number because you're spending more money on this kind of R&D. Maybe competition agencies can take a leaf out of the tech company book in, in investing in R&D. Bill, I want to finish with a 
question that goes like this. If you were general counsel of a gaffer company, what would you most want to know about the competition agency in a jurisdiction in which the company is being investigated or facing enforcement action? I would want to be tutored by someone who has a profound understanding of how that system came into being, how it's evolved the way it has, and what motivates its application today. So I want a personal trainer who's going to teach me about how the framework was established, how it has changed over time, how these different institutional features affect what the agency does and how it does it. What is the human capacity of the agency? What are its powers and other institutional capabilities? And how do the political and economic forces at work in the country define what it can do and how it can do it with an eye towards teaching me about what arguments to make, how to understand the state of mind of the regulator? I would want a deep and meaningful course for myself in how the system came into being, how it's structured, and what motivates it. How does it work? That would be, uh, I would say, essential preparation for dealing with jurisdiction. And it can't be done simply by having people sitting in a remote capital, uh, reassuring themselves that they're terrific companies and... They're making society better, and that's the only story we have to tell. That doesn't do the job. Clearly, the job of understanding competition agencies is a big one. But it's also crucial to any debate about how to make the laws really work in this area. Next on Competition Law, we talk to Dr. Catherine Kemp from the University of New South Wales about the preliminary report recently released by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission in its inquiry into digital platforms and the news. Now, I must warn you, the report is a hefty tome and it has some striking recommendations, likely to attract substantial comment and even controversy. Until then, you can find links to some of Bill's recent work in the show notes and other resources and links at competitionlawlore.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Bitten-Wells. Wells.